Welcome to the Inspiration Tub podcast, exploring topics ranging from the nature of reality to personal and leadership development. Your host for this show is Dr. Essan Sakahi. There you are. Hi, Hi. Hi. Very good. Very well. Yes. I was I was ambiguous about when I should log on because we've switched back from daylight savings time to normal time. So it's five o'clock here right now, whereas oh, I right. talked to you at six o'clock here. So I was uncertain, but here you are. So it all worked <laughs> out well. <laughs> it worked out well, yeah. So it's 9 a.m. here and it works just fine. So if it works right. five p.m. works fine for you, then we'll uh we'll, we'll continue with that so yes. um yeah so so nice to see you again uh and um i watched that uh atp uh video yes, i watched yours as well right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about the one that i uh, i sent you? i thought it was i thought it was quite interesting the only thing about it that bothered me mm. was that they sort of ascribed a desire for death to the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Entropy. <laughs> right, like the universe is constantly pushing us towards death. I mean, it is true that we have the second law of thermodynamics, which says that entropy of the universe keeps increasing and the entropy of uh, isolated systems increases for the most part, mm -hmm. at least. Um, but but I, I balk at attributing this to a desire on the part of the universe. <laughs> it, it's just I, the way yeah. things evolve. It's, it's really interesting because I think it's, it's, it's that kind of counteraction that's happening. It's the, it's the, there's always two opposing forces in every aspect of whether we look at physical sciences or biological sciences or psychology or sociology, there's always these two opposing forces that balance, balance right. things out. Um, and, and it's really interesting. I, I find that, but what was most intriguing for me was um, when the, the, the part of the video, the one that I sent you, the one, the part where at some point one of the cells you know, kind of consumes another cell, but doesn't yeah. kill it, doesn't doesn't destroy right, it, right, 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 yeah, and it almost creates a, a a safe environment for it to um to evolve and and become become a more complex whole, uh, system, um yeah. and and we and, see that yeah sorry yeah, and it in the process of doing that it contributes to the continued life of the larger cell that 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 gobbled up the the smaller one it becomes a what it, what is it the name for it uh mitochondria becomes mitochondria. a mitochondria in the larger cell and it's a source of energy yeah yeah those those things happen and they happen as you say uh almost any aspect of dynamical processes that one examines there are uh what can be described as forces in one direction and forces in the opposite direction. It's, it's not that that uh, bothered me about the, uh, the video. Hmm. It's the, and this is, this is a very widespread tendency, the tendency to, to sort of take from our own personal experience when we exert forces, on other people, on other objects, uh, 
psychological forces, sociological forces. We are doing it for what we experience as desires or wants or needs, etc. Um, but I, I, I guess to some extent, this is a personal prejudice of mine because I'm a, I'm a physicist. Mm. Um, I think the value of an awful lot of the scientific explanations we claim to have is that we can achieve some level of understanding of all these dynamical processes without having to attribute desire and intent to the various portions of the universe. Um, and, and for me, it sort of undermines the explanatory character of our understanding of dynamical processes if we then inject desire or motive into what is going on. Uh, it, it's as though the whole ballgame is to try and have a, an explanation that doesn't invoke desire and motive. And then when we reflect back on ourselves to try and understand to what degree, if, if any, can we understand our own processes as processes that are not driven by desire and motive, but that's just a kind of, I don't know, the way we experience our own actions. Um, but anyhow, anyhow, people have very different views on this sort of thing. Mm. Um, I, 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 I'm glad you raised this because uh, the, the, the idea of intent, motive, um, or desire, which, you know, us humans have, and then we look at, you know, animals right. and obviously they have intent and motives and so on. Um, uh, is again, intent and, uh, so the opposite of intent is, uh, I mean, uh, the, so this is the word that comes to me, uh, uh, the opposite of intent would be total surrender to what is. It's just like there's no intent, so non-intention, right? So it's right, like it, right. what it is. It's just like whatever. Yes. Um, <laughs> so so intent is directional, um, non-intent, or just a total acceptance, just randomness, or whatever we can right, call it, right. is, is the opposite. And again, this coexistence of these two things, which are opposite in nature, again, just much like everything else we talk about, that there's an opposite uh, of right. of is again that's part of that duality uh uh which which we see and and that's the that's the the most uh, uh you know extraordinary thing that if we go to um <laughs> sounds bizarre but saying like for instance molecules having intent and not and having not having intent and having intent at the same time right right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes and i'm inclined to i'm inclined to draw the line at attributing any kind of intent to molecules. I don't think <laughs> molecules have any intent. Now, the thing is, uh, you, you get molecular aggregates that get larger and larger and more complex, more complex. You get that, that enormous molecule in the video that I sent, the ATP synthase, which functions for all the world like a macroscopic factory, cranking mm. out ATP from ADPs, ADPs are fed into it and ATPs mm. come out. Mm. And yet 
I want to hesitate at attributing any any goal, any motive to that. It's just what those atoms do when they're aggregated together into that enormous molecule. We have very little understanding of how it can do that or why it can do that. And for me, the biggest question is, you know, those atoms, we tell ourselves that those electrons and those atoms, those protons are all governed by quantum mechanics. And what quantum mechanics tells us is that everything they do is a probabilistic thing. There's a certain probability they'll do this. There's a certain probability they'll do that. Rarely, if ever, do the probabilities come out to be one or zero, like it'll always do this or it'll never do that. Very, very rarely, if ever. And yet that molecule functions with the ADP that it's fed into it and the ATP that it manufactures and all the electron traveling through it, it functions like it's deterministic. Mm. The mm. probabilities for what it does must be so close to one, mm. even though they're not quite one. Like it must be one in a billion times, it doesn't do the right thing. And the ADP does not get manufactured into ATP. But then for the next billion times, it does the right thing. Mm. Uh, it, it's just absolutely mind-blowing to me that that mm. can happen. And it's a clear indication that there's an enormous amount that we don't understand, uh, even if quantum mechanics is the correct fundamental theory, and it probably isn't. There's probably something at that level we don't understand. But even if it is, there's an enormous question mark as to how complex molecules like the synthase can do what they do with probabilities so close to one and zero. Uh, that just boggles my mind. Mm. Uh, the, the, the evolution of the universe with entropy increasing is... I think most physicists would say, and here I would agree with my colleagues, that's comparatively easy to understand because uh, it turns out that if you, um, if you ask for a description of all the possible ways in which a system like the universe might evolve, uh, given what we claim to know about the laws of nature, which is incomplete, but, but at least we accept what we claim to know about the laws of nature. Can we understand why the tendency is to drift towards greater entropy? And I think the answer is yes, we can understand that, simply because there are so many more ways in which the system can evolve towards disorder than there are ways in which the system can evolve towards order. And in living portions of the universe and living inside ourselves as well as us as living organisms in the great wide world, living organisms keep entropy low. They function in a way as to keep entropy low. And once we die, then all of those efforts are abandoned 
and the entropy of the makeup of our bodies just shoots sky high. Mm. And that's just because there are so many more ways in which that can happen than there are ways in which the entropy can be kept low. Mm. Uh, so it's, it, it comes out to be essentially a matter of statistics counting. The, the statistician can come along and say, well, how many different ways could the universe evolve from its present configuration uh, so that there was more disorder at the end of, say, a thousand years uh, rather than less disorder? And the answer would be something like, I'm just going to make up numbers here. Uh, well, there are 10 quadrillion ways in which it can evolve so that there's more disorder. And there's maybe a thousand ways that it could evolve so that there's more order. Well, surprise, surprise, it's going to evolve primarily in the 10 quadrillion ways because there are just so many more. So I pretty much accept that explanation of why the entropy grows in the universe. It does have dramatic consequences, of course, but it doesn't seem to me that there's a need to attribute motive and uh, desire to mm. the universe as a whole mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, the intermediate to... level where life exists, the intermediate level, like you go back to the very early universe, there's no life, things are terribly chaotic which raises a problem right there because entropy has to be low for the early universe how can it be low and still be so chaotic and then there's life in the intermediate stage of the evolution of the universe which is where we are and life behaves for all the world like there's intention and motive and where did that come from Is, is is that emergent is that fundamental and then uh, at the at the distant future, where the evidence strongly suggests that life will eventually peter out in the universe, it won't continue indefinitely. Uh, so that 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 that's that's a puzzle as I see it. Yeah, um, it, it is a puzzle. As where where did that? Because it, it, life forms actually. Uh, and I like how you know in that video it quite makes it quite simple. It simplifies it. It's it's almost going against yes. the you know, natural laws of the universe. Yes, yes, yes. So it, yes. It's separated itself from the universe. Now it's doing its own thing. Right. Why it's doing that? How it happened? That's the mystery. And um, uh, uh, again, I I think you're right that we can't. Uh, 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 you know add motive to everything like the atom and the molecule because that's we're just attributing human characteristics to things which are non-living and it's it you know, right. doesn't yeah, yeah, and a lot, yeah. a lot of people do that to pets they do that to animals they're saying oh you know this dog is you know but i mean of course animals do yeah, have motive, it doesn't you know it doesn't bother me very much when somebody does that about their pets where they say the dog is angry or the dog wants to do this that makes perfectly good sense. The dog certainly behaves as though he wants to do this, that, or the other thing. And cats do too, and monkeys do, and apes do. Mm. And uh, yeah, and the question is, how do the molecules of which they and we are composed manage to behave as if they have all these desires? If you really believe they're just molecules, 
And it's hard for me not to believe that. It's probably a lot easier for you not to believe that, but it's harder for <laughs> me not to believe that. But then it's a great puzzle. How do these molecules manage to behave as if they were driven by motive? That's incredibly mind-boggling to me. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. And I think it, it's been mind-boggling for many philosophers and scientists over yes, the past yes, yes, know, right. millennial, and uh, no one has come up with a reasonable <laughs> answer yes. as to... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm just. This is one of the things I've, I've been trying to figure out as well. It's, it's uh, to, to bridge that gap, and um, the, I guess what, like for, for me, it's, it's that polar opposites that are creating that balance. Um, now going back to that, uh, that the animation where, um. Uh, the cells combine and and um, um, they become more complex, and we see that you know in in life. I mean, conception is one one example of that. Two uh, two cells um, combine and create a new life form, and 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 it's generally that you know that the complexity comes from that. Um, so, so uh, where intention ever, ever kind of was, you know, when 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 was it that a life form uh, was complex enough? Because I think what's interesting is what is life itself, you know? Because if you go down yeah. to the to a life form, is like it's is a DNA can be DNA. DNA is made of all these kind of codes, and then right. the cells are made. So, so it's it's like looking for life itself is a complex thing because we yeah. just don't know where exactly that life is. It's right. like if you go break it down, we see the molecules, we see the, we go down to the DNA, we go down, but it's, it, there's nothing which is living essentially in right. any of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's yes. what's so complex about it. It's yeah. Like, if you, if you go back to the, uh, the, the, the prokaryotes, when there were only prokaryote cells that didn't have nuclei and they didn't have mitochondria hmm. And the, the and the earliest the biologists for run, reasons that have never uh, made much sense to me, but I you know I'm, it's just outside my realm of expertise. The biologists always talk as though one prokaryote cell without a nucleus and without mitochondria engulfed another prokaryote cell, which then became mitochondria. And they tend to say this happened once. This happened just once. And then the replication that took place for that, that cell that engulfed the other cell just replicated what we now call eukaryotic cells, which have nuclei and have mitochondria. Why did it have to only happen once? I don't get that. Why couldn't it have happened widely separated in time, widely separated in location, mm. but several million times. Why would that be a harder thing to explain life today than to assume it only happened once? Because if it did only happen once, the likelihood that it would get squished before it can even replicate once would seem rather high to me. So anyhow, that troubles me. Yeah, it um, does. Yeah, I can see why. I mean, is there is there actual fact? Is it 
Is there proof that it only happened once, or is it just? I can't. I can't imagine what proof would even be like. Yeah. But yeah. but the biologists argue that way, right and left, in the books they write, in the papers they write, they say it over and over again. And and I've never heard any biologist say, "How do you know? How do you know that it only happened once?" Mm. But there must be some reason that they say that with such conviction. Uh, but that really, that really puzzles me. It's interesting because if the conditions are right, then it should happen. Uh, you know, um, it, and 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 if it, it could be only, it might have happened a few times, and some of those right. got squished, yes. and then one of them survived, or maybe a few of them survived, and then kind of went on to replicate and right. uh, become right. more complex. So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's still, it's, it's still as something that I think we will never be able to fully understand as to how life actually happened, why it happened. And yeah, um, you're probably right. Yes, you're probably yeah. Right. And, and, and that's why, um, that's why we've got philosophy and spirituality and religion trying to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, if we could. Short of short of really understanding the totality of the phenomenon of life, if we could just master the way the molecules that comprise primitive life, uh, what we like to call primitive life because it's at the cellular level or just small number of cellular combinations, uh, if we could just master the way in which those guys managed to keep entropy suppressed for the duration of their life until they disintegrate or decay and then disorder takes over because there are so many ways to evolve disorderly rather than orderly. If we could just learn to master what it is they do to keep entropy low, we could probably extend our own lives by thousands of years. If we knew how to do that, not that that would be a good thing for the universe to extend our <laughs> life for thousands of years, but we'd probably think it was a good achievement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it, it's interesting it, it, because at some point, uh, let's go to back to when Darwin, for instance, talks about the survival, you know, the, the, yeah. so there there is something that needs to survive. So it has an intention to survive. So it will consume resources from its environment, it will compete against, you know, uh, other life forms in its environment to, to survive. Where, when did it actually start that, 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 that kind of intention to survive? Okay. I need to survive and I will just consume. And so that is the interesting thing. Like when can we attribute intention? Uh, yeah. Is it bacteria? Is it the virus? Is it like, the single-celled or multi-celled uh, organisms, at some point, it it has it, it had it right. It and and where when that's the, that's the right question. Yes. Uh, now I would put it slightly differently. I wouldn't ask the question when did it acquire the intention, but because I I'm skeptical that it has an intention. I'm because I think you know it isn't it isn't as though one prokaryote got engulfed by another because 
you know, they exchanged they exchanged ideas and they said, hey, you know, we could <laughs> we could make it better, buddy, if we got together and cooperated. <laughs> I think yeah, I, I, you, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think what I meant is when was intention emerged, when it emerged, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the emergence yeah. of intention. Yeah. Right, right, right. Mm. Uh, and at some point, if suppose suppose somehow okay we've got the eukaryotic cells they have nuclei they have mitochondria etc all the intermediate intermediate structure inside the cell which the prokaryotes don't have um and the main thing they have to do eukaryotic cells is they have to divide before they disintegrate if they don't divide quickly enough eventually their cellular structure will wear out and they'll disintegrate. Entropy mm. will take over for them. Mm. But if they replicate before that happens, so that instead of getting old, they produce two of themselves that are young, starting all over again. And then those produce two of themselves. Mm. Mm. And so there's a sense in which they never die. They just replicate, replicate. And maybe, I don't know enough cellular biology to know the answer to this, but maybe if you, if you monitored, say, a hundred cells that could replicate, of the same kind that could replicate, and you would find them replicating, replicating at a certain rate, and maybe after a long enough period of time, the replication rate starts to slow down because the very late generation cells that have been produced by replication, they're sort of, they're a little bit worn out because they're being manufactured out of what I'm going to call elderly tissue. <laughs> I'm, getting, mm -hmm. I'm getting way out on the deep end here. <laughs> if any biologists ever are listening to this they're probably saying oh my god this guy's an idiot <laughs> no, I, I'm, but what I, the hell i'm speculating <laughs> but i'm wondering about that i'm wondering if it's the case that when you monitor a replicating group of cells you find that the second generation is just as vigorous as the first and the third generation and the fourth generation. But when you get to say the thousandth generation, you notice some, some sluggishness perhaps in the next replication. Mm -hmm. So that in a sense, the replicating and enlarging family are getting old in some sense. I wonder if there is such a thing as age that can be attributed to replicating cells. I don't know the answer to that. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I'm not too aware. Again, uh, I never, I, I didn't study biology in school. I just did chemistry and physics and- um, Right, yeah, me uh, too. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so I think we need we need to bring in a biologist to help us right. with these <laughs> questions. <laughs> well, actually, if you if you know of any uh, 
biologists, uh, uh, colleagues or former colleagues that um, mm. you might recommend. We could um, we could even bring them in and have a have a kind of a uh, all right a, yes a, a conversation with. <laughs> yeah, think about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so this this is kind of quite it's still fascinating. Uh, and um, I, there's I one guess... other aspect that I wanted to mention. Uh, and it pertains both to the video that I sent and the video that you sent. Um, in the video that I sent, when you're looking at the the process where the uh, the ATP synthase is processing electron after electron coming down the stalk. And, and this somehow maintains a proton, uh, uh, what do they call it? A proton gradient, proton mm. gradient between the exterior and the interior mm. of the membrane. Mm. The processing for each electron and, and other processing that takes place on, the, on various protons, they treat them in the video and, and I'm not criticizing for this because I don't know how else you could do it, but they treat them as though there was a kind of individuality to the electron. There's this electron, then comes the next electron, then comes the next electron. So each electron has a kind of individuality, just like ordinary objects, just like people. Mm -hmm. But what we learn in quantum mechanics mm -hmm. is that what I call quantons, what most people call particles, they don't have any individuality at all. Mm, mm. You take two electrons, you cannot in quantum mechanics attribute one quantum state to one electron and a different quantum state to a second electron and let that be the end of it. You have to switch the attribution and then subtract the second attribution to, from the first attribution so that there's no meaning to say this electron is over there and this electron is over here. You've just got two electrons over there and over here, and you can't say anything about which electron is where. Mm -hmm. Now, in, to some degree, and this is just another one of the absolutely amazing features of these molecules, these organic molecules, to some degree, those molecules manage to treat the electrons and the protons as though they had some individuality, even though at the most basic level in quantum mechanics, you learn that they can't have any individuality. Same is true of two protons as well as two electrons and two yeah. photons. Yeah. Any two quantons of the same type uh, or any three or any four or any five, they they do not have any individuality. You can't tell whether that one is the same as an earlier one or or not. It's just a meaningless question. Uh, unless so, if we observe them, then the you know the when the wave function is collapsed, then they they can they can. Um, uh, well, all you know, if the wave function, suppose you make an observation on an electron. Okay, you know you've made an observation on an electron and you got a certain collapse from, say, some arbitrary initial state down to a state which is pretty much a momentum eigenstate. Suppose you did that. Mm 
<laughs> if somebody came up to you and said, which electron did you do that to? Mm. There's no answer that quantum mechanics gives to that question. It just says you did it to an electron. And you can't say, oh, I did it to, to the electron that was over to the left there. I didn't do it to the electron that was over to the right because those two electrons, they're interchangeable with a minus sign on the state function for a pair of electrons. They're anti-symmetric yeah. state functions. Yeah. Now, now, uh, Gordon, I'm going to say something you might you might not like, but I'm going to say <laughs> you probably know where it's going. Um, but if there is a if there is uh, omnipresent observer like universal consciousness that observes every uh, every electron that uh -huh. that actually then it can collapse every single kind of wave function so that that can actually function in some way. Is that is that a kind of very strong kind of statement? Well, what I would have to say is that if that's correct, then there's an aspect of quantum mechanics that has to change because quantum mechanics would not allow that. What quantum mechanics, as it presently exists, the way it would respond to that or the way we, quantum mechanics, would respond to that would be to say, Okay, suppose you collapse all the electrons. You still can't tell me of any one of those collapsed electrons, where was it one second or one hour or one day before you collapsed them all? You might say, well, there one day before I collapsed them all, there was an electron over here, there was an electron over there, there was an electron traveling in that direction electron traveling in that direction. You can say all of that, but you can't say which of those electrons was any one of the ones you collapsed when you collapsed them all or any fraction of them. Quantum mm. mechanics simply doesn't allow you to make that kind of connection. Though in, 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 in casual conversation, we do it all the time. We talk as though they did have individuality. But theoretically, they don't. So if there's something that can be done, which can really attribute individuality to electrons or to protons or what have you, then that would require some kind of change in the basic structure of quantum mechanics. And mm. I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm, I'm sure that to some extent, I hope to, to some extent we will eventually improve on quantum mechanics. So we'll have to change something about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, if, yeah. um, now this goes back to uh, some of our earlier conversations um, about emergence of consciousness or right. consciousness always being there. So if, if, if there is this, um, if there is a, a, a kind of a universal consciousness which against it's it might sound a bit absurd but but if there is um and it's always collapsed all wave functions right from the beginning till now and it's is that does that even make sense but if if the reason that um we see uh individual particles behaving you know you know atoms and right. electrons and protons if if they had always i mean at a theoretical level they are quant quanta and all of that works on a theoretical basis, but because there is a constant um, 
observation of everything universally. So it's collapsing it. So it, it actually behaves in the, in the way that it does because it's there is a constant. So, so there never was a moment where it wasn't observed. So it's always been collapsed right uh, from the beginning, and it, it will continue to be collapsed. Okay. So so you're you're suggesting that uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it it seems to me there's a part of what you're saying that does involve universal consciousness, but there's a lot of what you're saying that doesn't necessarily involve universal consciousness, because it sounds to me as though you're suggesting that everything has really been collapsed from the get-go, and and there's a sense in which we're we're just not aware of the collapses until we come across one that, I don't know, we initiated or we exploited in some way. Would would that be a correct interpretation of part of what you're saying? I, I, I yes. Yes, I think that is that's what I'm referring to. Okay. Much, yeah. There there is an effort uh that's been around since the late 80s to f- to modify quantum mechanics, and I'm very sympathetic to this effort, but it hasn't been able to establish itself because it's very hard to get empirical data that supports it or refutes it. But this idea is that what we talk about when we talk about the collapse of the state function in a measurement is really not something that we initiate at all but rather there are spontaneous collapses going on in nature all the time. Um, although a single electron might live, might exist for a million years without ever being collapsed. Nevertheless, because there are gazillions and gazillions of electrons, there are many collapses going on all the time spontaneously having nothing to do with human intention to measure anything. And when we do have an intention to measure something, we simply manage to exploit this pattern of stochastic collapses that are going on all the time. Now, it differs from the idea you were just suggesting because the collapses aren't in the past. They're, they're going on right now. They've been going on in the past. They will continue going on in the future. And the wave functions or the state functions of the collapsed quantons will start up from scratch after each collapse that happens. Schrodinger equation takes over. Now, I'm very sympathetic to that idea, but like I said, it's been very hard for people to find uh, any solid evidence to support it or refute it. So that's why it continues to live as a theoretical idea and people continue trying to find ways of testing it, but it's been very hard to do that. Um, but again, that's a theory that doesn't invoke anything like intention anywhere. It's still mm. purely physical and very stochastic, very where the collapses occur, when the collapses occur, just up to chance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's this this kind of, uh, because I, when I um, started reading up on quantum physics more than 
20 years ago this was back when i was in high school and there was a, there was a book i think i was reading by um uh i think it was michio kaku somewhere or oh, one yeah. of the earlier books and, and back in you know kind of he, he writes in a very pop science fashion right, so right, right. Kind of quite attractive to young minds and so um and i'm i, I made a speech on quantum physics <laughs> to my year 11 you know uh-huh. in, in high school. And everyone was like, everyone was just sitting there, like, "What, what are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah. So one one thing, one um, but I remember apart from my speech where I said, you know, so if we're not actually looking at something, it you know, it just it can't really, it's undefined. It, it you know, there's something along along those lines. So there's a, there's always some collapsing of uh, realities required for things to be as they are. You know, right, for right. physical reality to exist. So that has always, you know, fascinated me about um, um, where it kind of a, um, a, and that's where consciousness comes into play. It's how how can there be things even when there is no life to observe it, or there's no, yeah. which goes back to your explanation about stochastic collapsing, which just happens randomly. So it doesn't require an observer. It doesn't require right, that. right, right. Um. Uh. So it's 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 uh it's a it's a complex one isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is <laughs> yeah the granddaddy of complexity <laughs> but so so i mean that uh it, it it the the stochastic collapsing of the wave function um what so we don't have as there is no cause it just happens it is just we're just saying just, just that's just right happens. at least the way the way it's formulated the way the theory is formulated is, this is a fundamental process in some sense it's almost the most basic fundamental process and it just happens there's no explanation offered for why it happens there's no explanation for how often it happens or when it happens, what are the details of how it happens? There, you're, the, the theory gives answers to those questions. It gives a parameter as to how frequently these collapses occur. It gives a parameter that when these collapses occur, the wave function for a single quanton, a single electron, say, might be spread out and then when the collapse occurs, it collapses very quickly, instantaneously to a Gaussian, a Gaussian curve, sort of like that, and rather narrow. But there's no explanation of why it collapses that way. You're just told that's the kind of collapse that occurs. And the amazing thing is that in the early versions of this back in the mid-80s, uh, they were able to show with rather simple assumptions as to how frequently these collapses, these spontaneous collapses occurred. And with an appropriate modeling of this Gaussian nature of the collapse, they were able to show that that model was compatible with what we think we already know about quantum mechanics. It did require a change in quantum mechanics. But it was of such a nature that you could see that what you would notice about the change 
would only be noticeable in very exotic circumstances that we hadn't examined very much yet. So it was compatible with uh, quantum mechanics as we knew it up to that point. And of course, what people hoped for was that by examining some of these exotic circumstances, you could actually detect the effect of this spontaneous collapse going on, even when we didn't want to make measurements ourselves. Uh, and that's that has turned out to be very hard to do, to, mm -hmm. to get any new information. Uh, well, what's fascinating is that the, the collapsing um, and the randomness, so the ter deterministic, deterministic and non-deterministic are happening in a way that creates this balance that for instance yeah. life is formed and things work in the way they do so there's this right. very elegant balance uh that that you know if if it, if there's too much collapse then it it's almost far more deterministic maybe that, that you know that it outweighs non-determinism yeah, right and and when it, if it's under uh uh you know that the rate of collapse is much less, and it will be much much more randomness. So, so, so life cannot really yeah, actually yeah. perform because of there's this just too much randomness, too much chaos. That's right. Yeah. So there's this fine balance that that we um we can I guess at least deduce that there is a fine balance that causes things to be as they are. So, which is uh really fascinating. Well, uh, what I would say is there's a fine balance. Whether it causes anything, I don't know what it causes, but there's a fine balance. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one thing, one thing, the people who put this theory together was a primarily a trio of Italians, Gerardi, Romini, and Weber, and then other people got on the bandwagon. But one thing they noticed right off the bat is if the collapse to the Gaussian was too narrow, was too sharply peaked, then that would violate energy conservation, and we would see that. So they had to make sure that the collapse to the Gaussian wasn't too narrow, that it was sort of like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then when you make it like that, then it becomes harder to detect because the collapse is not so dramatic. It's, it's, a, it's a soft collapse, so to speak, rounds the edges off, but it doesn't, doesn't give the, the quanton too much momentum or too much energy to violate conservation of energy. So it's difficult, anyhow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. All right, uh, we've, we've solved that. What do we do next time? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Gordon. All right. So much. And yeah. uh, enjoy Have the rest a good of two weeks. Day. Take care. Likewise. Thank you. And enjoy the rest Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to drop us a five-star review. This greatly helps others find the show so they can benefit from the content. See you next time.